Romans chapter 6, this is a performance phase of Romans, meaning that I'm performing the book, reading a translation. I was at first a little bit fearful about doing a translation because I can't, can't do it justice, and then I thought about all the translations that are out there, and uh, none of them have done justice. In the Synoptic Gospels, the Greek doesn't even get it. So, incidentally, Pastor Brown, if you find out that I exhorted you from the pulpit Sunday, it was all good. It was very positive. It had to do with the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I'll hold you to it. So, I had the privilege of talking to Paul Matthews this afternoon for a little bit. And he wanted to convey his gratitude for all of the prayers, which have been very effective. The surgery that he had was 11 hours long, much more extensive than he thought, but providence intervened in many different ways, and he attributes it to your your prayers, him and Colleen. So, thank you. And continue to pray for his recovery. It's going to take a while. Okay. This doesn't mean that we're not praying for those whom we have not publicized about that are going through things. I just was wanted to do that for Paul since he's been a notable co-laborer in a position in the ministry for so many years, he and Colleen, so faithful. All right. As I said, the final, I won't say the final phase of Romans, but one of the next phases of Romans has been to read a translation. This will be free from my commentary, except what I call intratextual, intratextual within the text. Some, what I think are very helpful and even necessary expanded commentary, but very brief. So all the insights are somewhere else. And this is a reading and I, I intend to read it in a way that Phoebe would have performed it. She delivered it, hand-delivered it to the church in Rome and probably performed it. And that included all the nuances of Paul's language. It included a very extensive part of that epistle being a dialectic of contradictories. A lot of scholars have found Paul to be confused or incoherent. And you read this, you're astonished because the scholars are serious. But what they failed to do is to arrive at the insight that Paul isn't doing all the talking here. He's in a conference and a dialectic and an argument, really a toe-to-toe argument, with an opponent who has an opponent gospel. In defeating that opponent, he defeats all competitors of gospels that are out there today that somehow appeal to human action, whether it's believing or obedience or some action, rather than the divine act of God in Christ, Christ in him crucified. And so with that, I'm going to continue. We've read the first five chapters in one evening. I'm going to take it as far as we can before it gets too late. I won't go past eight. And chapter six was where we will begin. And my intention and my prayer is that this will be conveyed in the same spirit 
who originally inspired these words through the Apostle Paul. They'll be delivered with conviction and that they will transfer many, many insights to you and that you will, by the grace of God, have good ground upon which the seed can fall. This has the potential of helping your joy more than any other message, any thematic message or exposition because it's concentrated and we're doing did the best possible job I could do on this by the Holy Spirit's grace and kindness. From this also we have doctrines, probably the most significant doctrine doctrine I've ever developed so far is justification. It'll be topped only by instauration. And the first two parts of that are out on the information table for you in fairly rough form. But that's only the beginning. So, Father, we pray that you will indeed convey these words into our hearts so that the word about Christ can dwell in our hearts plentiful, plentifully and richly so that we can encourage one another. So needed is this encouragement in this clash of the ages which intensifies and escalates up until the coming of our Savior when every eye sees him, every knee genuflects, and every tongue acknowledges worshipfully praise to you. May praise arise from this reading tonight in our hearts, Father, and we entrust our spirits into your hand for it. In Christ's name, amen. Romans chapter 6. What will we conclude then? Shall we persevere in allegiance to sin so that grace will abound? Certainly not. How can those who died to sin live any longer in it? And we did die to sin when Christ died. Are you not aware, in verse 3, especially those of you who accuse my associates and I of saying, go and do evil that good may come? That as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death. We were buried together with him through the aforementioned immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the Spirit that is, so we too may walk in newness of life not in our own power, but by the divine power, namely the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and we most certainly have, we shall likewise be united with him in resurrection. For we know that our paleo man, the old man, the now obsolete former self, who is worse for wear by being under the controlling allegiance to sin, was crucified together with Christ so that the body of sin, sin as an embodied or personified power, would be rendered powerless to control our allegiance so that in turn we would no longer be enslaved to sin, that cosmic superhuman power that is stripped of its control of us by our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ. Verse 7, for the one who died, that is Jesus, 
and with him all of humanity in all of time is liberated from the control of sin, justified. Now, having died with Christ, we have confidence that we will live with him even now. But then, in bodily resurrection, completely. Because we know, assuredly, that Christ, having been raised up from the dead, can never die again. Death, also a suprahuman power, no longer lords it over us, no longer lords it over him. Verse 10, dying, he died to sin once for all. But living because of his resurrection, he lives to God. So bank on the fact that you all are dead to sin on the one hand, and on the other hand, that you're all alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because when he died, you died. And he arose justified, you arose justified and freed from sin's control. Therefore, verse 12, don't let sin reign as king in your mortal body even now by being obedient to its impulsive desires. Do not make your members, that is the sum total of your body parts, available to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. These are activities that are antagonistic to sanctifying grace. On the contrary, as those who are alive from the dead, present yourselves to God, making all the parts of yourselves available to God as weapons for rectitude, for sin will not lord it over you. That is, to command and have your allegiance, precisely because you are not under law but under grace. So much for grace is a license to sin. Verse 15, based on this, what do we conclude? Should we continue in allegiance to sin as a cosmic power antagonistic to God because we're not under law but under God's grace? Of course not. Don't you know that to to whomever You are making yourselves available as obedient slaves to him you really are enslaved, either of sin leading to death or of God leading to God-approved livingness. But thank God, verse 17, that by his grace, you who were once slaves of sin were obedient from the heart to that pattern of doctrine to which you were handed over. Moreover, having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to rectitude. I'm speaking by a human analogy here, by personifying sin and rectitude as slave masters because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, to show you that you have to serve somebody. You are not your own master. That's simply the human condition. For just as you all made your members or bodies slaves to idolatrous impurity 
and to lawlessness as your master, resulting in slavery to lawlessness. Just so now, make your members available as slaves to rectitude, resulting in sanctification. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, capital S-I-N, you were free from allegiance to rectitude, but what fruit were you producing from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end result of those things is death. That is separation from God-approved livingness and from a created participation in God's uncreated life. But now, having been liberated from sin and having become enslaved to God, you are having fruit resulting in sanctification, and the end result is the experience of eternal life a created participation in uncreated life, the life of the coming age, even now. For the wages that pays, that is paid by sin, the wages that sin pays is death. But the gift of God is participation in eternal life, even now, but in bodily resurrection completely with Christ, namely with Jesus our Lord. Jesus is our Lord, not sin, not death, not the flesh, not the sin-hijacked law. Chapter 7, I'm speaking now to those among you who know the law. Torah. Are you not knowing, brothers and sisters, that the law lords it over a person only for the time in which she lives? For example, a married woman is bound by Torah, Moses' law, to her husband while he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the Torah's directive that deals with husbands. Consequently, then, if she gives herself to another man while her husband is still alive, she will be called an adulterer. But if her husband dies, she is free from that directive and she will not be called an adulterer if she marries another man. You see, she was freed from the law by the death of another. Verse 4, this is an analogy, my brothers and sisters, to teach you that you were put to death, killed, as Deuteronomy 32:39 says it with regard to the law through the crucified and dead body of Messiah so that you may belong to another man namely the one who has been raised from the dead Messiah Jesus see my emphasis here to Christ and him crucified and raised in order to bear fruit for God through your marital union, that is, by bringing others to God so that they, too, can be gifted with life and be children of God. You see, verse 5, as long as we were existing in the Adamic ontology, under the control of the flesh, sinful passions, not just sensual or sexual passions, but the intense desire for preeminence over others, operated through the law. In every part of our body, 
that is our whole being, to bear fruit for death, death who reigned as our former Lord through sin. But now we have been released from the law, having died to what was holding us so that we may serve God and one another in the never antiquated newness of the spirit and not in the obsoleteness of the letter, the observance of the strictures of Torah in the power failure of the Adamic ontology is now superseded. This is my comment by the newness of life and service to God as priests in the efficacious power of the spirit. What then? Verse seven is the Mosaic law sin. Most certainly not. On the contrary, like you know the law, I too, as one who also knows the law, would not have known what sin even is if it were not for the law. For example, I would not know what it is to covet if the law specifically the Decalogue in Exodus 20:17 had not commanded, do not covet. But sin, capital S-I-N, commandeering the commandment, do not covet, as a base of operations, brought in me, brought about in me every kind of covetous lust. For apart from the law, sin is dormant and inactive, practically dead. But with the law, sin is revived or activated. Now, verse 9, once I was alive without the law. But then the commandment or the expression of the law's demand came. Sin was revived and I died. The law with its promise of life killed me. Because it was under the control of sin leading to death. I was shocked to discover that the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing a base of operations in me through the commandment, deceived me. Deception being an effective tactic in this war, and through it killed me. So then, verse 12, the law in its totality is holy. And the commandment, that which Torah requires of humankind, is holy, righteous, and intrinsically good. So did something inherently good become the cause of my death? Of course not. On the contrary, sin was that cause. This was in order to unmask sin, to show what it really is. The culprit who brought about death in me through that which is intrinsically good, the law. Consequently, through its hijacking of the commandment, sin is seen to be extremely sinful indeed. For though, for we know, we, fellow Jewish Christians and I, know that the law is intrinsically spiritual. Its requirement of rectitude is fulfilled only by the Holy Spirit. But I am of the flesh. I know this just as well. The Adamic ontology, 
having been sold as a slave to sin. A master, sin, capital S-I-N. I do not recognize what I'm producing. That is, I don't recognize the fruit of my own actions as something that I remember planting. Because I don't practice what I intend to do, but the very thing I abhor. Now, verse 16, if I'm doing what I do not wish or intend to do, then I'm merely agreeing that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who is doing what I hate. I'm intending to do good. But sin that dwells and operates in me in the form of the Adamic ontology, I know that nothing of intrinsic goodness resides in me, that is, in my unaided human resources at the mercy of sin. For I desire to achieve the good, but I don't find the ability. I don't do the good that I aspire to do. On the contrary, I practice the evil that I disdain. But if, verse 20, if I do what I don't aspire to do, then it is no longer I, the real me, producing the evil, but sin housed within me that now possesses me because I've been sold as a slave to it in the Adamic ontology. So then, as far as the Sinaitic law, the law given on Mount Sinai is concerned, The outcome of the above experience is that for me, the one who wants to do the good through works of the law, evil is what I find at hand. In my innermost person, like you, I joyfully agree with the law of God and want to do it. But I discover another law. And by that I mean the same law, only under the control of sin co-opted by sin. I discover this law at work in my members. My members, by that I mean the same undivided person. Not another person. I do not have a divided self, but I'm aware of a divided law at war with that law of God that I observe in my members, that I observe, rather, with my intentions taking me captive to the law controlled by sin in my members, which ought to be at God's disposal as weaponry in the eschatological apocalyptic war. What a miserable man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is lorded over by death? This is where you end up by following my opponent's gospel. Listen carefully to that because that's the sense. This is where you end up, oh, wretched, miserable person. This is where you end up, Paul, as the point is getting across, by following my opponent's gospel, justification by the works of the law. I thank God, verse 25, for my rescue. Through my rescuer, Jesus Christ our Lord, the new and true Lord of all of us together. Consequently then, left to my own resources, 
With the mind, I serve God's law. But with the flesh, sin's law, or the law hijacked and commandeered by sin. But God, I comment, who sent his son on a divine mission to die for me while I was completely helpless, has also sent the spirit of his son so that I am not left to my own resources after I'm liberated from my former captivity. A necessary comment. Chapter 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation leading to death. There is justification leading to life to those who are in Messiah Jesus. For the law, that is the justifying and liberating power of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit, and by that I mean the power of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me from the law or the enslaving power of sin and of death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, God did by sending his own divine son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that is, for its removal, he condemned sin, not human beings, in the flesh of his incarnate son in order that the rectitude or the God-approved livingness that we're all after, required by the law, Torah, would be fulfilled in us, in those who are liberated from the supra-human powers of sin and death. That is, in those who comport themselves in their mortal human bodies in a manner not directed or controlled by the flesh, but by the Spirit, that being the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, the glory of the Father. Verse 5, those who are determined by the flesh and not the spirit think and intend with the flesh. They can't help it. But those who are determined by the spirit think and intend with the spirit for the rigid mental and intentional inclination, call it the mindset of the flesh, leads to death. The same thing to which sin leads. And the same thing to which the letter of the law under sin's control leads. But the habitual inclination of the spirit, that is the mindset produced by the spirit, leads to an experience of life as a created participation with divine life. And peace. God approved livingness in the kingdom of God. You see, the habitual Mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is, by definition, hostility against God. This is reflective of the two opposing gospels. My opponent's gospel opposes the gospel of God just as the flesh opposes the spirit. They are mutually, irreconcilably opposed. 7b, it does not submit to God's law, neither is it even able to do so. Those who are controlled by the flesh, that is, those who are in the sphere of the flesh's control, especially by trying to be justified and sanctified by the works of the law, which have been rendered impotent by the flesh. They cannot please God, but you are not 
in the flesh, but in the spirit, since indeed, indeed the spirit of God actively resides in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, belonging to Christ means you also belong to the Holy Spirit. Now, if Christ is in you, your body is dead as far as being an instrument of sin. But the spirit keeps giving life so that your body is an instrument of rectitude. Moreover, if the spirit, who is the glory of the father, who awoke and raised Jesus from the dead, as we saw earlier in 6.4, if he resides in you, and he does, then the one, that is the father, who awoke and raised Christ from the dead will make alive your mortal bodies themselves. In bodily resurrection, through the instrumentality of his spirit who indwells you consequently, that is, as a consequence of the spirit in you, my siblings, we are not under obligation at all to the flesh to live under the domination of the flesh. For if you live dominated by the flesh, you must die. By that I mean you'll be separated from the livingness that is a participation with Christ so that you'd be dead while you're living. But if, by the Spirit, of course, you are putting to death the actions of the body under the control of the flesh, you will live. That is, you will have and experience the life of the coming age even now. The life that has conquered death. The life of Christ in you a created participation in divine life. 14, as many as are governed and guided by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. The title that Yahweh gives to eschatological Israel in Hosea 2.1. For you see, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again, like enslaved Israel in Egypt, leading to slavish fear like the enslaved Israelites who feared the wrath of Pharaoh. On the contrary, you received the spirit of adoption. Adoption being fully realized in the parousia and in bodily resurrection as the privilege accorded to the people of Israel, the Israel of God, by whom we cry out to God, the Father, Abba, Daddy. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we are children, we are also heirs, beneficiaries and inheritors, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the heir of all things. Seeing that we're suffering in order to also be glorified with him. I'm banking on the fact that the sufferings of the present time of crisis, this clashing junction of the ages, are not worthy of comparison with the glory that's imminently to be revealed in us. For all whom he justifies, he glorifies, as we'll see in 830. For the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God, the glorious revelation of eschatological, resurrected, glorified Israel. For the creation 
in its totality was subjected to futility. Genesis 1-2 says, void and without form, only to be given purpose and shape by its creator's indwelling or residence. It was not subjected to this futility willingly by its own will, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. And by that I mean God's hope. But God's hope is a figure of speech for his determined resolution. Verse 21, that the whole creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom enjoyed by the children of God. For we know that all of creation in all of its times laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even until now. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the proleptic new creation, the preview of a universally liberated creation, the church, the Israel of God, Christ's corporate, we sigh deeply in ourselves as we eagerly await the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, that being the redemption of our very bodies, their inevitable ransom from corruption. It is in this hope, an absolutely assured hope, because it's God's own determined and unstoppable resolution to liberate the whole of creation by comprising it of Christ. It is in this hope that we were saved. However, hope that is already realized is not by definition hope. Who hopes for what one sees or has fully realized already? But if we are hoping for what we do not presently see, we keep on eagerly waiting for it. In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, keeps coming to help us in our weakness, especially in as much as we don't even know what to pray for, as we should. But the Spirit pleads in our behalf with groans too deep for words. Yes, the Spirit even groans with us and with all creation. And the one who sees, in verse 27, precisely what goes on in the thoughts and intents of people's innermost being knows just what the Spirit is thinking and intending because he's always interceding for the saints as God the Father would have it. On top of that, verse 28, we know for sure That for those who love God, that is, those whom God loves, for those who love God are first loved by God, and God loves all humanity. For those who love God, that is, the loved by God, the one being God who subsists as three persons, is synergizing all things to a divinely, benevolently intentioned end and goal. By those whom God loves, I mean those who are the called to belong to Jesus Christ and called into being as a new creation according to his purpose. 
Verse 29, because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son as sons of God. So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many siblings. Moreover, verse 30, those whom he predestined for this conformity, he also called into existence as a new creation. And those he called into existence as a new creation, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I told you before, siblings, that he justified all of humanity with justifying life. So he glorifies all whom he justifies. All humanity is destined for glorification. Verse 31. So what can we say? Including you, my opponent, incidentally. What can we say? Against these things. Nothing at all. If God is for us, and he most certainly is for us in all the ways previously specified, who can be effectively against us? No one at all. Since indeed God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. How will he not freely grant us all things with him, who is not only the son, but the heir of all things? How do we not end up with all things? Who will bring an effective accusation against God's elect? Will God? Will God accuse those whom he justified? The thought is unthinkable. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, even more who was raised up? That's because of our justification in Romans 4.25, which came about through his faithful death for us, who is now and forever at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf. Will he condemn Of course not. The thought is unthinkable. Verse 35, in the meantime, until that last judgment, when we will fully experience our acquittal and justification in the light of glory, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? I mean, after all, it's written in verse 36, because of our identification and association with you, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Psalm 44, 22 says it. But in answer to 35, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destination or destitution or war? In answer to that, in verse 37, No. In fact, in all these things, we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. That's God who reconciled us to himself while we were still his enemies. And that's Christ who died for us while we were ungodly and in a state of intractable sinfulness. How can, he be, how can we be separated? We're more than conquerors through him. 
Verse 38, for I've been persuaded beyond doubt that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things in the present or things about to be or powers or above or powers below nor any other governmental institution like the Roman Empire and its agents it sends to punish those who it considers to be disobedient. None of these things will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In fact, through whom God will transform the evils I just listed into the supreme good by the just and mysterious law of the cross. Beginning another section, I want to address the question of Israel according to the flesh and the question of their hardness of heart. Chapter 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying to you. My conscience is my co-witness with me in the Holy Spirit. When I tell you that I have great sorrow and unrelenting grief in my heart, this sorrow was so great that for a time I was on the point of praying to be cursed and banned from Christ if such a thing were possible. It's not because Christ became a curse for us. On behalf of my siblings, my countrymen, according to physical descent, kinsmen, family, countrymen, who are Israelites, to whom belongs still, not lost, the adoption and the Shekinah glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the priestly service and the promises, whose are the patriarchs and out from whom, according to physical descent, is the Messiah who is over all and who is God, who is blessed forever. Their present condition, that is of disobedience and enmity against the gospel, does not mean that the word of God has failed. For not all who are hereditarily descended from Israel are presently, authentically Israel in God's view. Neither are all the descendants of Abraham physically his real children. That is, Israel isn't Israel by the mere fact of genetic descent. On the contrary, the scripture says in Genesis twenty-one twelve, in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, in verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent from Abraham who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered seed or descendants. For this word is one of promise. This word is one of promise. At this time next year, I will come, says Yahweh, and Sarah will have a son. Genesis 18.10 and 18.14, conflated. Verse 10, not only that, but even more to the point, when Rebekah conceived Isaac's wife and had two children by one act of intercourse with Isaac, our forefather, and he I'm speaking now to the side of my mouth, verse 11, for before the children were even born, say nothing of doing anything good or bad in order that God's elective purpose would continue in effect, not from works, verse 12, but of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger in Genesis 25, 23b. As it stands written, Verse 13, I have loved, 
And by that I mean I've elected Jacob as the one through whom the seed, that is Christ, should come. And Esau I have hated, that is, rejected as the one through whom Messiah would come. Malachi 1, 2, and 3. What then shall we say? Verse 14. There is no injustice with God, is there? Of course not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Hint, hint, he will have mercy on all. He says this in Exodus 33, 33, 19. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, verse 16, election does not depend on any human who wills or on any human who runs, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I brought you into being for this reason, to showcase my power by using you, and so that my name will be proclaimed all over the world, literally in all the earth, Exodus 9, 16. So then, as God said to Moses in Exodus 33, 9, Cited in 9.15, he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. According to Romans 11.32, he shows mercy to all. And he's not unjust to do so. And he hardens whom he will. He temporarily hardened part of Israel. Romans 11.7, on the way to showing mercy. And saving all of Israel. 11, 26, and 32. You. Now the opponent jumps into this mix again. My opponent. You. Opponent. You may say to me at this point. Then why does he still find fault? If it's not a matter of man's will. And if we can't resist his will. Why does God find fault when we do wrong? Paul. On the contrary. Who are you, O mere man, to answer back to God? Will the thing that is molded say to the one who molded it, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have no right to make from one mass of clay a piece of pottery for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Here's a hypothetical. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience? All of my epistles speak of the patience of God, which is salvation, as our beloved Peter, our brother Peter shows in 2 Peter 3.15. Vessels of wrath. What if God endured with much patience, which ultimately is salvation, vessels of wrath that were made to throw away? That is, What if he endured vessels for mere temporary use to bring about a permanent salvation? And in order to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called into existence as a new creation, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call, quote, not my people, close quote, my people. 
and not loved, most beloved. Hosea 2.23. And in the, in the very same place, that being Jesus Christ crucified, where they were told you are not my people, there in Jesus Christ raised from the dead, they will be called sons of the living God. That is those whom God hardened for a time temporarily. Hosea 1-2, Septuagint 2-1. The opponent jumps in again in verse 27. Last-ditch effort for him here. But Isaiah cries over Israel, saying, Though the number of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. Quoting Isaiah 10, 22 to 23. And just as Isaiah predicted, Isaiah 1, 9, had the Lord of the armies, Yahweh Tzavaoth, not left behind a seed, we would have become as Sodom and we would have come to resemble Gomorrah. Paul, verse 30. Well, what shall I say in response to this then? How about this? The Gentiles, who were not even actively pursuing a status of rectitude, have apprehended the status of rectitude. But it's a rectitude that is from faith on the basis of Messiah's fidelity, a status that is in compliance with justification by Messiah's faithful death. But Israel, pursuing the law as a means to attain righteousness, has not overtaken that law. In fact, there is no such law by which righteousness and God-approved livingness can be attained. The opponent. Why did Israel not attain this rectitude? This God-approved livingness? Paul. Because they were not pursuing the status of rectitude on the basis of faithfulness. And by that I mean Christ's faithfulness. But on the basis of works in compliance with the law of Moses. While they were pursuing, they struck their foot against the stone that trips people up. As it is written, look, I'm laying a stone in Zion that makes people trip. It's a rock of offense. That's the crucified Christ. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. As Isaiah 8.14 says in conflation with 28.16. Verse 10, chapter 10. I, Paul, am now speaking, brothers and sisters, the desire of my heart and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. I desire with all my heart that my countrymen would experience even now the salvation that is by God's saving righteousness through the Messiah Jesus faithfulness. This is a long comment, of course, because many of them are now perishing, having considered the word of the cross to be nonsense. Two, I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but that it is not according to knowledge, that knowledge being the knowledge of the Son of God and his universally saving significance, the knowledge of that truth that's embodied in Jesus. 
Because being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is his saving act in Jesus Christ, apocalypsed by my gospel, and by desiring to establish their own righteousness, their own rectitude, they have not been subordinated to God's righteousness, which is the saving act of God in Christ. For Christ, rightly perceived, is the end of the law as a means for rectitude to everyone who believes. That is, everyone who believes perceives Christ to be the end of the law as the way to be righteous. This does not mean that faith is the means of justification, but the means of perception that the law doesn't justify. For Moses writes of the righteousness or the rectitude that is of the law, that the person who does these things will live by them in Leviticus 18.5. Now, a new voice enters the scene. It is the voice of the Reformation, we could say. It is the voice called the righteousness of faith. That is, of the crowd who assume that justification and righteousness comes by an individual's personal faith. Listen carefully. 10.6 through 17. The righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart, Deuteronomy 9.4, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will ascend into the abyss, into Sheol, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it, the righteousness of faith, or the justification by human faith crowd say? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. If you just say it, <laughs> If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or the Lord as Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes unto righteousness. With the mouth one confesses unto salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes in him will not be ashamed, Isaiah 28, 16. True. For there is no difference between Jew and Greek. True. The same Lord is rich toward all those who call upon him. That is, to call upon him for help or for salvation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Consequently, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Moreover, how will they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how timely is the arrival of the feet of those who proclaim good news, Isaiah 52, 7, and Nahum 1, 15. In other words, the justification by faith crowd says the whole responsibility falls on the preacher. But not all have believed the gospel, says this crowd. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah 53.1. Therefore, faith, the faith that saves, according to this philosophy, comes from the report, the report that is the word about Christ. Verse 18, but I say, in contradiction to that philosophy that one is saved by calling on God, confessing with the mouth, believing in the heart, etc., 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 but I say... Did they really not 
here, that is without a preacher. On the contrary, yes, they have. They've as good as heard, because into all the earth their voice has gone. Psalm 19.4. And in contrast to the righteousness by faith crowd, I, Paul, say, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous by those who are not even a nation and provoke you to anger by a nation that is void of understanding. Then Isaiah backed him up very boldly saying, I was found by those who were not even seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking, and we can add not confessing, not believing with the heart, not being baptized, not seeking, but to Israel, Yahweh says through him, Isaiah, all day long I've stretched out my hands like the crucified Christ to a disobedient and defiant people. Isaiah 65, 2. We'll read the first six verses of Romans 11 and close. I ask then, the argument continues. God has not rejected his people, has he? And I'll reply. Most certainly not, for I myself am one of them. I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he previously chose? Or are you unaware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining, and they are seeking to kill me too. But what was the divine response to him? I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men, a representation of the eschatological fullness of Israel and their universal restoration and salvation, as will be proven throughout this text, who have not bent the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there is a remnant at the present time which is also a proleptic representation of the eschatological fullness of Israel and their universal restoration and salvation coming up in Hebrews and Romans eleven twenty six, chosen on the basis of unconditional grace that meets no conditions like confession or belief or baptism or calling upon. There is a remnant on the basis of unconditional grace. Now, if it is by unconditional grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It wouldn't be freely given or unconditional. Thank you, Father, for this word which rings true. For the spirit who inspired it initially, for the spirit who is in our hearts and who has gripped us with the same conviction as the Apostle Paul. We're grateful that we are the objects of your unconditional grace based on the faithfulness of your son, our Savior, 
Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. Father, we're so grateful that the entire argument of Romans, which we have studied now for many, many months, has pointed to one person alone. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Father, for extending the pleasure that you have in your son to all of humanity, in fact, to all of creation. For it is the mystery of your will, as we will learn in the future, and as we have learned in some measure in the past. It is the mystery of your will to sum up everything in the fullness of times, that is, everything over all of time, in your Son, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for this, Father, for it makes us view all of humanity with different eyes. It makes us view our fellow believers with a different point of view. It grants us a compassion and a love for those that are opposed to us, a love for our enemies so that our love can be as the Father in heaven, perfect. We thank you, Father, that as we keep this word, in us will be perfected that love of God. Grant what a pastor cannot do A communicator cannot do, a translator or an interpreter cannot convey an understanding of you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.